Most of you have probably heard of this sculpture. It was created about 10 years ago. It was made by a man named Timothy Schmaltz, and it was placed outside of a school of theology at the University of Toronto. And it depicts in bronze a figure that is laying down on a park bench underneath a blanket. And you can't make out the face or the hands beneath the blanket, but the feet extend just beyond the blanket's reach. And those naked feet each display a wound from the crucifixion, identifying this statue as Christ. Schmaltz calls this statue the homeless Jesus. And an article on this statue describes it as a visual translation of the passage in the Gospel of Matthew in which Jesus tells his disciples, as you did it to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Since this statue was first cast, there have been more than 50 more castings that have been distributed to churches and universities and public places around the world. You can even find one here in San Antonio outside of the uh, St. Mary's Catholic Church downtown. Schmaltz said that when he, wants these, uh, when he places these statues, he wants them placed in public places so that as people pass them by, it might challenge them and make them stop for just a moment and think. So imagine a cold evening, you're walking around downtown, perhaps you're on your way to a good meal or a show at the Majestic, and all of a sudden, you stumble onto an image of God that's struggling to stay warm and survive. It might startle the evening a little bit. You've probably also heard a variation of an old story that goes like this. A local United Methodist church is eagerly awaiting the arrival of their newly appointed pastor, and they have a nice welcome reception planned for the Sunday morning uh, that the preacher will come in for the first Sunday. They've got plenty of snacks and coffee laid out for his arrival, and as that welcome committee gets to the church and starts to prepare for this party, they notice that there's a homeless man sleeping on a bench outside of the church. So they send a custodian out to shoo him away and continue to go about their business. This man, though, seems to want to loiter. He asks if he might have one of the snacks that they're putting out. And again, the church members send a custodian to take him a cookie and ask him to move along. It's getting closer and closer for the time for the service uh, to start, but the pastor has not yet arrived. And the welcome committee is starting to get rather nervous and a little upset with this pastor. Suddenly, this homeless man decides to walk right into the church atrium where everything is set up, and the custodian by this point knows his role and begins to attach, uh, approach this homeless man, and just as he gets to him, the homeless man drops his trench coat, revealing his clerical robes and his collar in the great gotcha moment. The welcome committee realizes they have not been very welcoming. Today is the last Sunday of our liturgical year. And on this last Sunday each year, we mark it as what we call either the Reign of Christ Sunday or Christ the King Sunday. As we come to the close of our journey this year through the Gospel of Matthew, we've spent the last several weeks talking about the time between 
about the liminal space that we find in the absence of the presence of Jesus in the bodily presence. And these stories that we've been spending time in help the community of Christ to navigate these liminal spaces. Each of these stories has some shared themes from the parable of the bridesmaids a couple weeks ago to the slaves and the talents that we talked about last week and several of those themes you probably noticed carried into our story this morning. These themes include waiting and anticipation. These stories help us to wait with purpose. They encourage us to realize that we are enough for that bridegroom. They encourage us to share our lights and to open the doors to those that have been found unworthy. They encourage us to resist the temptation to engage this world only on this world's terms, but to move for justice and compassion. And each of these stories also has in it a moment of arrival. The arrival of a delayed bridegroom. The arrival of a cruel master. And today, the arrival of a moment of judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. There's a Greek term that Christians have used to describe this return of Christ. And the word is parousia. Can you say it, parousia? Very good. We get this term like we do many of our Christian terms from the culture that existed around the biblical writers. And this Greek term literally meant to be present. Parousia means to be present. But it was also used to describe a, par- a particular event that would happen with some regularity in the ancient world. A parousia was an event in which a powerful figure, usually somebody that's royal, made an official visit to a city that is outside of the capital. There were small parousias for minor political figures, but if the Roman emperor himself paid an official visit, you can imagine that the parousia would be massive. This welcoming committee for this visit would be expected to make sure that an entire city is ready to host the emperor and all of those legions that travel with him. Streets would be cleaned of trash of all sorts, including the riffraff of needy people that are often found in our bustling cities. Monuments and sculptures of the coming king would be erected in the public squares and places of power, and a great banquet would be prepared, and all the people would gather to welcome the emperor. The emperor, for his part, would make sure that his arrival showed his force and power. He'd be accompanied by his host of armies, showing symbols of power like a throne, priests of Roman religions, spoils of war. And the local officials then would welcome Caesar into the city and have him exercise their power, his power, in their place. And so Caesar would come and he would lead a sacred ritual. And then they would bring before Caesar those that needed judgment. Caesar would first judge those worthy as worthy to be celebrated. He would honor those that showed bravery in battle or political ingenuity or the ability to make a bit of profit for the empire. 
And then Caesar would punish those that they found undeserving of grace. He would have dissidents executed, thieves in prisons, and heretics exiled. And I'm hoping that you find this a little bit familiar because this parousia sounds a lot like the stories that we've been exploring for the last three weeks. It should sound a lot like a bridegroom that comes and rewards some and doesn't even acknowledge others. It should sound like a lot, a lot like a wealthy master that comes and demands that his slaves give him everything that they've earned. It should sound a lot like the story that we're reading this morning. These stories all play on the idea of the parousia of the great and terrible Roman emperor. But as they do, these stories also subvert that story. They change our expectations and they surprise us and encourage us into a faithful response in a world in which Jesus is absent. A world that rewards often cruelty and violence and exploitation. Our story this morning is pretty straightforward. But it doesn't make it any less shocking, especially for those that are actually in the story. In this story, the nations are separated into those that are called sheep and destined for life eternal and those that are called goats and destined for eternal kolasis, the Greek kolasis. We translate it as punishment in our translation today, but the word means something like pruning or giving room for growth. Now, the criterion for this judgment is also rather shocking. It's mercy. For those of us that believe that our way to salvation is through faith only, this story tells a different story. It's those that act with mercy towards the least of these that are named the sheep. And it's those that who failed to act with mercy that are named goats. And then the really surprising part of the story is this. None of the sheep... And none of the goats actually have any idea what the king is talking about when the king hands out judgment. The king says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me water. Or I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not give me clothing. And all those that gather before this throne of glory, this glorious presence of a king and the host of angels react with confusion. When did we do that? I don't remember that. And so this king says that when you encountered the least of these, you encountered me. When you saw those most insignificant and most wretched and most in need, it was me that you saw. And when you extended mercy, it was to me that you extended mercy. And when you passed them by, It was me that you passed by. Now let me tell you how well I learned this lesson this week. On Tuesday, there were a few of us here in the office, and we all decided to go to lunch together, and so we piled into a friend's car. I got into the back seat, and as we were leaving, I'm looking out the window. Right up on Bassey Road, there is a bus stop. And as we passed that bus stop, I saw a figure laying down on the bench. And this figure was surrounded by disheveled shopping bags and a little buggy. And I don't know if you remember, but Tuesday was a little crisp and pretty windy. 
And so this figure that was lying on the bench had buried herself under a colorful but filthy coat. All that I could see of this figure on this bench in front of the church were a couple of shoes that just barely reached past where the coat extended. And when I saw her, I remembered this statue. And then we drove by and went to lunch. When I got back to the office a little bit later, I went up to my office and I continued to work on my notes for this sermon. I read an article that I was trying to read. I thought about the prayers that we'd pray this morning and then I started searching for information on this statue. And I started writing down the facts of this statue and then I remembered a funny story about a pastor disguising himself as a homeless man and tricking his new church. And as I was sitting there, feeling really good about myself, feeling like I knew where I was going with my Sunday sermon, feeling like I was really glad that I'm not the type of pastor to manipulate you guys with tricks, it finally hit me. I knew in that moment, which you guys have probably known since the beginning of the story, but I knew that I had passed an image of the divine that was in need, and instead of seeing the divine in that image, I saw a sermon illustration. It hit me kind of hard. I actually did come downstairs to see if she was still at the bench, but she wasn't. Here's what I think about the story of sheep and goats. I think that the setup to this story is a setup. We keep expecting God to look like the empire. We expect this parousia to shock us into attention as we welcome Christ on a throne and his angel armies back to the earth. And don't get me wrong, I do name Christ as Lord and King, but I think that this Lord is so much different than the Lords that we see in the world around us. It takes these shocking stories and these momentary glimpses of the divine to shock us into being ready for the growth that we need, the growth that we need to be able to engage the eternal life that is available here and now and in the people around us. The setup to the story is just a setup. We're looking for a throne, but the glory and the image of God rests on a cold and hard bench right outside this church. Jesus makes a promise to his disciples at the end of this gospel. After he's been executed and somehow brought back to life, Jesus meets the disciples in Galilee. He appears to them on a mountain. And the gospel ends with a few words that Jesus speaks to the disciples. Matthew doesn't describe an ascension. He doesn't end his gospel by saying anything about where Jesus went or how He ends with a few words. Jesus says to his disciples, remember, remember I will be with you always to the end of the age. And I think he meant that. This word parousia, these words that we translate as glory, all carry with them the meaning of a presence, heavy and true and glorious presence. 
Our story this morning is a story of parousia and glory. It's a story of the divine presence that is here and now that is promised to be with us always. Every person that we meet that is in need, every person that we see that needs food, that needs water, that needs shelter, that needs companionship and friendship, that needs grace and healing, is a bearer of the divine image. It means every single person here in this room, all of us here, those that gather with us online, those that we encounter as we walk out of this place, those that we see as we're on our way to lunch, and on our way to the Christmas shopping, and maybe even a show at the Majestic, bear the divine image. And so may we open our eyes and may we see the glorious throne, the glorious throne of God that we can see on the cold and hard benches that surround this place and that are in this city. May we see the God that sits on those places. And so in the name of the God of glory and presence, and Christ the King and the spirit that prepares us, that prunes us and prepares us for growth. Amen.